0: And it's ending one minute at a time. I was
1: blind, but now I see. Working
0: jobs we hate, so we buy shit we don't need. Ideas are a If you had one shot. Everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. We're your fucking khakis.
1: Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. In this episode of the Biohacking Secret Show,
0: should we thereby conclude that smoking filtered low-tar cigarettes is good for you? It sounds ridiculous, right? You and your listeners know far more than my colleagues do. That is the peculiar situation we find ourselves in the 21st century. Am I missing something here? I mean, when I take it out of people's diets, their lives are transformed.
1: I'm excited to chat. We've got, uh, we've got some cool things to cover, but for the people that aren't familiar with, with your book, Wheat Belly, and some of the work that you've done, what are you best known for?
0: Well, the Wheat Belly books, making the argument that the advice we've gotten from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Food pyramid, food plate, USDA, American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, Academy of Nutrition, Dietetics is all a bunch of bunk. They misinterpreted the science and made some grave, grave, not because they're bad. There are some bad people in those organizations, but for the most part, they're well-intended. They just made a mistake. They misinterpreted the science and they they contributed to a world now, and not just U.S., not just North America, but a world of fat type 2 diabetics with one or more autoimmune diseases and dysbiotic changes in their uh, bowel flora. In other words, they have wreaked horrible changes and there's the fault of the people who misinterpret the science. Once you understand that though, you would have the key to restoring magnificent health and slenderness and even youthfulness.
1: And is the biggest mistake their recommendation for I don't even remember how much it was, but it was a tremendous amount of daily servings of grains, including wheat. It, would you say that that's the biggest uh, piece of misinformation?
0: Yeah, that was the spinoff that got its start with "cut your total fat, cut your saturated fat" with the science fiction that came from people like Ansel Keys in the seven countries' studies, and then of course, I mean, people have to eat something, right? You can't eat just bags of jelly beans all day, so you've got to fill a calorie gap with something, and so the natural uh, food to turn to, they thought, was grains, and then whole grains. And then people like Walter Willett and Frank Sachs and Frank Hugh all the Harvard School of Public Health, who published epidemiologic observational studies. These are studies that are very, very poor and weak and cannot lead to any conclusions. They cannot establish cause and effect. But these people published several studies like the Nurses' Health Study, Physicians' Health Study that suggested if you replace white flour, something bad, with with whole grains, something less harmful, and there's an apparent benefit and there is. There's less colon cancer, less heart disease, less type 2 diabetes, less weight gain. Then the conclusion they drew was a whole bunch of less bad thing must therefore be good. <laughs> so the analogy I draw is what if we said that uh, full tar unfiltered cigarettes are bad for you? And what if we could show that smoking filtered low tar cigarettes are somewhat less harmful, a little less lung cancer, a little less heart disease, a little less abdominal aortic aneurysms, <laughs> Uh, should we thereby conclude that smoking filtered low tar cigarettes is good for you? It sounds ridiculous, right? But that is the kind of flawed logic that is used in those studies and in epidemiological observational studies, which are such a garbage. Those are the same studies, friends, that led to mill- tens of millions, hundreds of millions of women being prescribed Premarin for a decade—the most widely prescribed drug ever in history, based on observational data that suggested that women who took Premarin had less endometrial cancer, breast cancer, heart disease, uh, uh, etc. And then the Women's Health Initiative and the HERS trial, where people would say, Mary, take this pill. I don't know what it is. You won't know what it is for five years. Double-blind, randomized, people are chosen at random. That's the real way to perform these kinds of studies. That study was performed, it showed that Premarin, increased endometrial cancer, heart disease, breast cancer, and accelerated dementia, showed the opposite. And when you do the same thing in observational data in nutrition, over and over and over again, the data that came from things like nurses' health study, women, physicians' health study, the observational data was proven wrong, proven wrong. And so over and over again, we have this body of science that is essentially science fiction, but it's the basis for the USDA food plate and food pyramid and the basis for uh, giving advice to Americans that has been adopted worldwide. Now we've exported, by the way, obesity and type 2 diabetes to France and Italy and Australia we've and China. So there are more type 2 diabetics now in China than there are in the U.S.,
1: Ah, so we are getting into the export game. That's, <laughs> That's
0: right. We should put a tariff on it.
1: <laughs> nice. So when you looked at at a lot of the history here and some of these misinterpreted studies and just bad science, period, what was, was, was there a motive? Was there a financial incentive for them to misinterpret the data or con- conduct the studies in a way where they could be misinterpreted? Or do you honestly just believe it was bad science and jumping to conclusions without adequate double-blind, random, um, controlled studies.
0: And it was both, you know, when when the um, USDA opened the conversation up to uh, the public, you know, people like you and me and your listeners don't go to um, Washington DC and sit for two weeks and participate in in the conversations that lead to such things as the USDA food pyramid, but industry does. They have people who sit there and lobby and fight and scream and yell and throw things and take the representatives out to dinner. I mean, they, they have excessive undue influence over a uh, policy. And it so while- It's like a case of domestic domestic violence,
1: screaming, <laughs> <laughs> yelling, throwing things, then taking them out to dinner.
0: <laughs> so it's just a matter of, of, uh, of fact that industry has a heavy-handed role in crafting such policies, because you and I have other things to do, Uh, and and we don't have, uh, you know, a hundred million dollar marketing budget to staff people in Washington, D.C., and so, uh, and this has been true at the USDA policy level, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, it's true at the American Heart Association, the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, one of the biggest contributors to the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, that is a certifying agency for dietitians, is Coca-Cola, as well as Nabisco, Kraft, et cetera. In other words, in, in the U.S., we made this big, big mistake. We let educational societies take millions, tens of millions of dollars from industry. That's why when you go to the annual meetings, of such thing as the American Heart Association or the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, it looks like an industry fest. They got booths from Pfizer and AstraZeneca and Coca-Cola and Hershey's. Uh, you won't see any booths, by the way, for organic beans. Or uh, uh, pasture-raised eggs. (laughs) You will only see it from the deep-pocketed big agribusiness and big food. And so we have this mess that's been created. Now, on the positive side is if we cut through the BS and you try to ask, well, what should we do? And you arrive at better answers, then magnificent things happen. And uh, you can even tell your doctor, go kiss it, because uh, you don't need the doctor in the vast majority of instances. You know, if you and I watch TV, your listeners watch TV, now they're inundated with direct consumer drug ads, which, by the way, has discouraged big media like ABC, NBC, and CBS from airing any message that might be potentially antagonistic to their best advertisers, big pharma. So now there's virtually no negative reporting on healthcare. There's reporting on healthcare politics, but unfortunately no negative reporting on healthcare because it would antagonize Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Sanofi-Aventis, etc. So we have this big hole in reporting now in the U.S. where we all have to rely on people like you and other podcasts and social media because big media has abdicated their responsibility, as have the politicians.
1: Wow. So, what? Cutting cutting through some of what you just said there, essentially, we're dealing with censorship in a roundabout Absolutely. way. Yes,
0: exactly. It's it's kind of indirect censorship. So, if uh, you and I want to go on TV and say there's a problem here, we don't think that the company that makes Harvoni for hepatitis C for subclinical quiet asymptomatic hepatitis C, where doctor hands you a prescription, you feel fine, but he hands you a prescription, you take it to the to the pharmacist. He fills one little uh, bottle of 120 tablets, $84,000. That doesn't make the headlines because uh, uh, big media doesn't want to say anything nasty about big pharma. And this is just one among hundreds, if not thousands, of similar issues no one's heard about because they're scared to antagonize their average. So what you're doing, Anthony, is so critical. And that's why I support what you're doing and other podcasters do it and, and social media, because it won't happen on CBS anymore or NBC. So we've got to do these things. Cause I mean, what do we do with a nice family of four, you know, two parents and two kids, maybe the parents in their late thirties and their annual, I'm mean, sorry, their monthly healthcare insurance premium is $4,000. People will work to pay for their healthcare insurance, which by the way, doesn't go towards better health, as you know. It's a wealth transfer from people in the public into the pockets of people of, of well-placed insiders in healthcare: the doctors, the hospital executives, the hospital systems, big pharma, medical device industry, which is even bigger than big pharma multinational corporations, et cetera. So this horrible wealth transfer that's crippling the US is not making us healthier. It's certainly not making us richer. It's a wealth transfer into the pockets of people who are well-placed.
1: Yeah, after about 18 months of seeing my monthly insurance premium just go up and up and up, I finally was like, I'm not even using this and it's getting up to the, around what I'm paying for my Jeep and I just canceled it, which I'm not recommending anyone do, but it, it, it got to a point where I said enough is enough. And fortunately up to this point, it hasn't really come back to bite me in any, in, in any fashion. And the tipping point was sort of, I tore my pectoral muscle wrestling um, my business partner in a friendly. <laughs> <pack>. <laughs> you know, I tell that it always sounds like you're, you're at odds and decided to sort it out. And, you know, let's, let's take, let's have a duel. Um, but no, so I tore my pec. And hypothetically, while I was sitting in the the hospital, I said, hey, if I didn't have insurance, run me through how I would pay for this. And they ran me through a completely different scenario where it would have been almost the same exact out-of-pocket money and a completely different price for the procedure, even though it would be the exact same thing. And I was like, you know what? I'm out. And I'll take my chances and we'll kind of see how it goes. Now, again, I'm not recommending that for anybody, but, um, it does, it does kind of echo a little bit of what you're talking about, where it keeps people trapped. If they have to work half of the month or a third of the month or a quarter of the month, just to pay their, their health insurance, which gives them a little bit of that peace of mind. But what you're also saying is that that's not really health insurance. It's, it's sort of, um, disease insurance
0: yeah another thing a guy like you and your listeners who are invested in health and think about diet and maybe take vitamin D and don't do dopey things like smoke cigarettes or drink too much and exercise so uh, when you talk to the doctor I'm talking about mainstream doctors I'm not talking about naturopaths and integrative health and functional medicine doctors I'm talking about the mainstream MD a guy like you sits down with a primary care doc or gastroenterologist or neurologist and you know what you know a hell of a lot more than he does. He knows how to order an MRI. He knows what surgeon to use to take your gallbladder out. But When it comes to basic information on health, how to eat, how to manage your supplements, how to exercise, you and your listeners know far more than my colleagues do. That is the peculiar situation we find ourselves in the 21st century. Yet, my colleagues still insist that they are the end authority. They have all the answers. You've heard this. Ask your doctor if these supplements are compatible with, with your health. He doesn't know. He has no idea. <laughs> that's, ask your doctor before you take the fish oil. Couldn't, no risk of him. He has no idea. He doesn't read the literature, the sexy sales rep, in a miniskirt that's selling him drugs. Doesn't that's that's where you get this information from? Not from combing literature and talking to scientists and experts. There are one, there are people who do that. and Those are the ones who should turn to. But the vast majority of mainstream physicians don't know diddly about health. <laughs> because they're, they're st- believe it or not, they still talk to me, and a lot of them are still my friends.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and yeah, nothing nothing against physicians. I mean, they have to go through that gauntlet in order to get the white coat. Uh, and And it really goes back to a flawed system, I believe, especially now, and it, it starts in kindergarten or even preschool, but nonetheless I don't wanna, I don't want to get into a separate topic entirely. Have you thought at all about how do we start working our way out of this situation where everything is controlled by a few industrial, you know big corporations, and certain information is being censored? Um, what What are some of the first steps out? Have you spent any time thinking about that?
0: Yeah, and, and I won't pretend to you that I have all the answers. That's an enormous problem. One thing is clear though: the answers will not come from within healthcare If you're an ophthalmologist and you make two million dollars a year by doing useless, ineffective injections into the retina, you ain't going to stop, right? You drive that Ferrari and you have those three houses, you're not going to stop. So healthcare insiders are the last people we should turn to for solutions. So uh, what I do is I try to educate people to let them know that magnificent health, slenderness, youthfulness is possible and you don't need the damn doctor to do it. In fact, the doctor is an obstructionist most of the time in getting you healthy. So that's one way. You know, I, I spent this past week in Madison, Wisconsin, where the crossfit games the international crossfit games were
1: oh my friends my friend's dad is the one of the fittest man in the world over 60 uh dr <laughs> Hippensteel. <laughs> okay right. so
0: i spoke at their uh, a crossfit health and i talked to greg glassman the founder and a lot of the people around him they're working on may, may I, I mentioned that anthony because they're so well organized they're so big and so well capitalized and, and and um so influential that they're working on something similar to try to mobilize the, the, the millions of people in CrossFit, including the 20,000 physicians, by the way, who are in CrossFit boxes. Uh, just in the audience, there are something like 300, 350 people in the audience at this CrossFit health seminar I, I spoke at. 50 were docs. So I think it's, so Why I, I, I bash mainstream. There are a growing number of docs who are saying, you know, the system sucks, it's terrible, and we've got to do something. But, uh, so there, there's people like that. We had that big initiative by people like uh, Jeff Bezos and Jamie Dimon uh, who are putting, I think, $2 billion into an initiative to try to change healthcare and take the profit motive out. So I'm not sure where this is all going to go. I, I think a lot of us are also trying to craft what, what I call and opt out of health care insurance. You know, if, if what if, what if health care insurance said to you, Anthony, you're so healthy, we know that you don't smoke, you don't drink too much, you take vitamin D, you don't eat grains, whatever, right? And your family likewise, and we can measure the dramatic health improvements you have. We're going to cut your health care insurance premium from $1,400 a month to $300 a month. You'll never hear that. So unlike auto insurance, where good drivers get discounts, healthy people don't get discounts because you must subsidize that $84,000 for Harvoni for three months or the $4,000 a month Humira injection for the person who likes to eat grains and has rheumatoid arthritis. So you, as a healthy family, must subsidize those people. So I think what you and I should do is revolt and craft a means of opting out of that nonsense. I I feel bad for the people who are ignorant or don't know any better, but you know what? Those of us who spend a lot of time thinking about health and working on it, I think, should be given the option to opt out of this stinking horrible thing called healthcare and healthcare insurance.
1: I'm on board. I think we'll we'll have to put our heads together and figure out how to way uh, figure out a way to do it where we don't also become one of those eighty naturopathic physicians that have somehow disappeared or decided to kill themselves in the past few years. But anyhow. Um, Yeah, it seems like there's a growing divergence between people who have taken responsibility for their health and are learning through your books, like Meat Belly, uh, how to become more self-reliant and tools that don't rely on necessarily prescription medications, invasive surgeries, or the, the conventional system. And the people who prefer to only get their information, let's say from television, which you've just described. And that chasm is only growing wider and creating a separation where on one hand we have obesity, heart disease, cancer, and a lot of these modern modern degenerative diseases. And then on the other hand, we have people realizing like, wow, I have control over a lot more of this stuff than I even thought. And and a lot of the things that we've sort of been led to believe are genetic or uh, inescapable are lifestyle related.
0: Absolutely. One of the things we had we don't talk about. Uh, I haven't talked about enough in past years is an epidemic of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Yes. Yeah, that is big. Where you know, uh, so those your listeners who, who don't, aren't familiar with that yet, uh, microorganisms populate the colon, of course, but in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or, or SIBO, for short these organisms have ascended all the way up through the ileum, jejunum, duodenum and stomach. So you in effect have 30 feet of an intestinal infection. And it's mostly what are called enterobacteriaceae. The the nasty organisms like E. coli, Klebsiella, Shigella that do nasty things are highly inflammatory. So when you get SIBO, it inflames the entire body. It disables your capacity to lose weight. It causes water retention and edema. It massively amplifies your potential for fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, other autoimmune diseases, restless leg syndrome, psoriasis, on and on and on. It's it's so common and it so overlaps with irritable bowel syndrome that gas, the gastroenterologists, at least the ones in the know, are debating whether they should do away with the irritable bowel syndrome designation and just call it what it is, which is SIBO. And likewise, fibromyalgia, fibromyalgia is looking like SIBO, SIBO is fibromyalgia. And this is happening to so many diseases. I crudely estimate, Anthony, that 60 to 100 million Americans have SIBO. So we're talking about, if all that is true, uh, we're talking about an epidemic on a par with type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes, and the obesity crisis. We're talking about probably one in four to one in three Americans with SIBO. And a lot of that, I believe, is due to excessive consumption of grains and sugars. Because when you consume grains and sugar, it's like throwing breadcrumbs out in a path. And the ducks will follow you. It, it's, it's like inviting microorganisms up the gastrointestinal tract. There's some other issues too, of course, like chlorinated water, herbicide, pesticide residues, GMOs that contain BT toxin, glyphosate, blah, 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 on and on and on. We're exposed to a whole sea of factors that encourage SIBO. But uh, once again, if people recognize these things, you can take the reins of health. And by the way, the vast majority of mainstream doctors, if you say, hey, doc, I think i got SIBO. He says, I have what you're talking about. Uh, or don't bother me. Don't stop speaking in acronyms. <laughs> That's right. Don't waste my time. You're fine, right? Or I'll send you to the gastroenterologist. Gastroenterologist pre- performs an upper endoscopy and a colonoscopy and Anthony, good news. You don't have stomach ulcers or colon cancer. See ya. You mm-hmm. say, wait, 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 wait. What about my SIBO question? Oh, don't waste my time. Or go back to your primary care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or here's an antibiotic, Rifaximin. Take it. See ya with yep. no conversation whatsoever about how to recultivate healthy bowel flora and keep SIBO from coming back because it comes back over and over and over unless you take steps to prevent recurrence. So Absolutely. that's something, yeah, very, very, uh, uh, Anthony. I was guilty of vastly underestimating just how common this condition is. It's,
1: it's so common, and it, these, these pathogens or infections rather rarely occur in isolation. So the SIBO, which you've mentioned is largely responsible for many of these cases of of fibromyalgia often coincides with candida or fungal overgrowth and immune senescence, um, an immune system that's been run down due to some of the things you mentioned, glyphosate an environmental genetic mismatch. You throw in the the electromagnetic smog that we're now surrounded by that can degrade the blood-brain barrier, the intestinal barrier, and these things start to form a perfect storm and it's that the, the small intestines is so deep in the digestive tract. It's very difficult to get to with oral supplements and antimicrobials. Um, I did that zifaxin neomycin combined with Nystatin and Diflucan protocol back in like 2011, 2012. And it made a big difference for me. Fortunately, I was, you know, I was a lunatic, so I loaded up on probiotics and, and prebiotics afterwards. But if you hadn't, you're kind of starting from scratch and like, you're a baby, but you're worse than a baby because a baby at least like just went through its mother's vaginal canal and got all that stuff. You're starting from zero and, uh, and, and you're an adult. So it it, it is a challenge. And one of the more weird things that I've integrated is I actually just had some earlier, I've got some sugar cubes with a little bit of turpentine, which a lot of you may even be cringing right now. Um, but as a, as a cheap, hack for candida and SIBO it's one of the more effective protocols that I've used especially when you compare the cost of rifaxin the zifaxin and the fact that a lot of people just can't get that um It, 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 the, the 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 turpentine protocol is actually cheaper and and better. Uh, people respond better to it. But I'm not saying go out and take turpentine, guys. Do not do that. We're just having fun discussing things here and opening your eyes to things that you may want to look into further.
0: Could, could I tell you, Anthony, about a crazy experience we're having more recently, last few months? Yeah, please. That that, that interfaces with the SIBO issue, but it also has some other... So uh, because I saw so many people having... Incredible successes with the wheat belly lifestyle, which, by the way, is grain elimination with carb limitation, net carbs capped at 15 grams net per per meal, vitamin D restoration, iodine and thyroid optimization, uh, fish oil supplementation, magnesium supplementation, and then efforts to cultivate bowel farms. That's the basic wheat belly program. But I saw so many people have magnificent success despite the indifference or ignorance of their doctors. I wrote that other, the next book called Undoctored, and it kind of takes that whole conversation even further. It, the Undoctored has also become the launch pad for some new and exciting new strategies. And one of the things I've stumbled on in the last six months is uh, uh, this thing called, it's a, it's a specific probiotic species and strain called Lactobacillus ruteri. And the two strains are ATCC PTA6475 and DSM1793. this is all outlined in my Wheat belly blog and undoctored blog. You can, like buy it. <laughs> you can buy these organisms, but they sell it to you in low counts. And so I asked, would she how do we amplify counts? So we make yogurt from this probiotic organism in the presence of prebiotic fibers in the yogurt to ferment it. And we get trillion counts. In our yogurt. But what happens when you take this yogurt is, and I'm not making this up, I'm not exaggerating. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh skin smooths over. Uh ladies lose their
1: wrinkles within starting within about four weeks. Women are running to your blog right now to buy it. Is it do you <laughs> sell this stuff? <laughs> no,
0: no, I don't sell. So I have nothing here to sell. Okay. Um but it's all by the way, where to get it, how to do this it's all outlined in the Wheat Belly blog, Undoctored blog. It's called Make L. Royder Yogurt. You'll see there'll be lots of conversations about the yogurt, but I summed it up in a, in a post from about, I forget, six weeks ago, called Make L. Royder Yogurt. But it smooths over skin wrinkles. It increases dermal collagen. It massively accelerates the pace of skin healing and other healing. It, ex- it accelerates ex- post-exercise recovery. It preserves bone density dramatically. It increases libido. It turns it turns off appetite almost completely. You can still enjoy food, but you have are completely freed from appetite and impulse and some other effects. I mean, really spectacular. Like, the reason I bring that up, talking about SIBO, is lactobacillus ruteri is one of the few microorganisms that preferentially colonizes the upper GI tract: the stomach, the duodenum, the jejunum, the ileum. And I think, there's no, this, is my, this is my speculation and anecdote, we don't have any scientific studies, nor, nor has anybody published any yet.
1: It'll be 30 years for those.
0: <laughs> I think with this crazy yogurt, with these, this bacterial strain, we're not seeing any recurrences of SIBO. They've come to a halt. But now, alongside a high-potency multispecies probiotic fermented foods... And reintroduction of prebiotic fibers, but when we added this yogurt for other reasons—skin health, bone health, etc.—increased libido, accelerated healing—we start. I, I started seeing people having no, no more SIBO come back, even after they had you know three, four, or five recurrences. So I think we're starting to see a wonderful, spectacular. And you know, what I love Anthony. I love things you and I can do on our own without the stinking doctor, without the hospital, without prescriptions. You can do this on your own. You don't need your damn doctor's, uh, 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 you can ask him, but he won't know, right? Hey doc, what, if I make yogurt with lactobacillus, broiderite, ATCC, pt six four seven five, and obtain higher counts and eat it as yogurt, half cup a day. <laughs> okay. Will that keep my SIBO from recurring? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you get a smart response. It's going to go. Brruh, 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 brruh. That's right. <laughs> but,
0: yeah, so this, this will have to pass the test of time. But I mentioned that because, as you know, SIBO recurrence is a huge problem.
1: Yes. And, and I think a big yeah. part of that is the immune senescence. But so how do you speculate that this is working? Because you mentioned that it preferentially colonizes the upper GI tract. And how's it getting into the, the, the small intestines and, and what do you think is taking place? Have you thought about that?
0: Yeah, I, I think, and, and the science bears this out. This is not my speculation. Whether it fights back SIBO, that's my speculation. But the fact that it colonized the upper GI tract, that's fact. And so lactobacillus urtiri is uh, very good at producing what are called bacteriosins. These are peptide antibacterials. Uh, such as Reuterin, and it's very effective against enterobacteria ACE, like E. coli. Uh, and so, I it, it makes logical sense. We don't have any kind of formal clinical trial where people are eating the yogurt versus placebo or something like that. But so far, in maybe a couple of dozen people, we've seen failure of recurrence in SIBO going only about three months, though three, four months. That's as far back as our yogurt. It's, it's just brand new. It's is very exciting. And it makes, it makes sense that this, this very unique organism, and by the way, this organism is uh, an organism that seems to be disappearing from modern people, but is present in primitive people. So it's one of the, it's the start and you know, this idea that, you know, the, the the bowel floor of the Hadza and the Matsas and some of the other Highland and Amazonian tribes have been characterized now. And of course they have very different bowel floor than us. And so we're gonna start seeing this kind of effort to bring back this or that species and see what happens in modern people. It's gonna be really cool. Now, of course, big pharma wants to grab hold of that stuff too, but the good thing about this, it's very tough to lock up these things with patents. The company that sells us this strain did lock up bears with patents, uh, a nutritional supplement company, but it's still tricky to lock up bacteria with patents. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping this remains uh, what I hope to be an undoctored or a non-medical strategy that you and I can do on our own.
1: Yeah, that's very exciting. And before you introduce the well, I guess a couple questions about the yogurt. is Are you using commercial dairy? Are you using... Coconut, um, you know, coconut yogurt, almond yogurt. Are you going with? Are you finding raw milk and using that? What do you recommend? What have you seen most efficacious in, in the application of this yogurt?
0: Well, as as you know, dairy has issues. Now, when we make the yogurt, what I generally Don't do. All. I Don't we all. Don't be all, Williams. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we start with organic half and half, so that takes away some of the issues, like some of the excess hormone content, and antibiotic residues. We ferment it for 36 hours because that increases bacterial counts to the trillion range, but it also achieves some other effects. Uh, all the lactose, virtually all the lactose is now gone because it's converted to lactic acid, so this yogurt's very tart. And the lactic acid reduces the pH into the acidic range, and that breaks down or denatures a lot of the casein, the casein beta A1. Mm. If you strain out the whey, because whey provokes insulin, Uh, and make Greek yogurt or just pour off some of the insulin, the liquid part, then you've reduced at least some of your exposure away. So it doesn't eliminate the issues with dairy, but it reduces them. You can, of course, now get A2 dairy, casein beta A2, or goat or sheep, which mimics the casein uh, of humans. It still has some other issues, of course. You can make it with coconut milk. Uh, we, we've struggled these last few months to get this. It likes to separate, so a trick I learned from one of our, our followers in our undoctored inner circle is just take a stick blender, an immersion blender. So when your coconut milk is is uh, melted and no longer separate, separate the liquid solid, but you know, like maybe at uh, higher temperature, emulsify it with your stick blender. It suspends the fats, and you you won't get separation when you ferment it.
1: Uh, Ninja biohacks I'm digging
0: this (laughs) Raw you got to be careful Because you know when you get raw milk It inevitably has some Staphylococcus aureus and listeria uh, Exposure Now when you make yogurt You amplify counts And you could easily turn Your raw milk yogurt into a fatal um, Food Because you're going to increase the Staphylococcus And listeria counts So, So unfortunately you have to heat it to 180 degrees first, but kind of like pasteurization to kill off any bacteria. So it's, so raw milk tends to have those species, but it's the yogurt-making process that amplifies bacterial counts of the species you want that inadvertently increase the species you don't want to. So the raw milk can be dangerous.
1: Excellent. And are you doing any sort of fasting or antimicrobial protocols prior to the introduction of the yogurt, or is that one of the first steps that you take?
0: No, but I, I will tell you this, you know, up till uh, we had this crazy yogurt effect that gives you the so-called anorexigenic effect, turns off your appetite. We were using MCT oils to do that, to facilitate fasting. It helps a little bit, uh, but I'll tell you, Anthony, now th- the funny thing is you have to eat yogurt <laughs> to get the, your appetite to turn off. But it lasts, if, if, if I've been eating yogurt, say for some days now, the anorexigenic effect tends to last about three days. So if you wanted to do, say, a 36-hour fast, you coast through it. You coast right through it. It's easy as heck. And you'll walk right past food. I mean, you can eat it, and it still tastes great. But you'll, you'll, you'll be completely freed from that kind of slavery to food. It's a very, very freeing effect.
1: It's, it's really cool that you're mentioning this because I'm sure both of us have seen the studies showing that you take skinny rats and, and they've noticed this connection with the bacterial composition of the rat's gut and how that correlates with inflammation and obesity. And then when you take the skinny rats and you give them some of the like enterobacter and some of those species that we know are associated with obesity, all of a sudden they blow up. And, and you're essentially saying that this, I'm going to butcher the name, but L. Uh, roidery reuterai no huh is it's like it's sort of like the antidote to a lot of these inflammatory pathogenic bacteria that are colonizing the digestive tract at epidemic levels right now so we're kind of you know neutralizing that and it's resulting in a, a return to a more normal um, n- more normal hunger patterns
0: i think so and you raise a, a good point with your point about the animals so a lot of this work got its origin at MIT and one of the studies, one of the fascinating studies they did, it was, a, it, was a, it was a mouse study. They they gave two groups of mice a terrible diet, you know, just garbage.
1: <laughs> and the, a the control A couple group, of weeks ago, hanging out with some of my friends <laughs> at this lake house. <laughs> Could have been part of that study.
0: <laughs> the, the control group got fat and old and diabetic- and lost their hair, got scraggly hair, and they stopped mating with each other, they stopped grooming each other, so they got old and fat, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Another group of mice, given the same crappy diet, but also given Lactobacillus roteri, stayed slender their entire lives, thick, uh, luxuriant hair, didn't become diabetic, continued to groom each other and mate with each other their entire lives. In other words, they stayed young until they died. I think that's the conversation we're going to start having now that it it starts with diet, starts with vitamin D and cultivating bowel flora, and then adding on some of these additional insightful strategies like the lactobacillus-lizroideric conversation. And Anthony, I think the new conversation for us is going to be, can you be 40 for the next 50 years? Can you be 87 dancing, going to CrossFit, (laughs) riding your bike Going to Zumba class or whatever, right? Yeah, (laughs) Uh, mating with your partner, (laughs) chasing her around the bedroom. Oh,
1: Oh, this is great. So, what what types of effects are you seeing in people that that use this yogurt protocol? And how do you use it? How have you integrated it into your routine?
0: I just have a half cup a day, and I, I have been using dairy, and sometimes I'll do a 50 50 mixed dairy, coconut milk I, I, in my oven right now. I, I make my yogurt oddly in the oven. The one trick that the one hurdle people find is a means of keeping the yogurt at 100 degrees Fahrenheit for 36 hours. We go extra long for higher counts. So I just use my oven. You know I do? I turn it on to any temperature of about 60 seconds, turn it off, and leave it there, and do that every four hours or so. It's cheap, it's easy, you know, I don't have to buy equipment. A lot of people use Instant Pots, yogurt makers, or sous vide devices. The problem with a lot of those things are, so, especially the yogurt makers and the Instant Pots, they're not set accurately because this organism dies at about 115 degrees, 120 degrees Fahrenheit, and a lot of the yogurt makers go up to 125. Mm. And they, people say, I, I, I didn't get any yogurt. So if that happens, your listeners want to take the temperature of their device. And if it's too high, they have to get another device or find some other means of doing this. Uh, but I consume a half cup a day. I put some blueberries in it, maybe a score of stevia. That's it. And consume that half a cup a day somehow, incorporate it into your routine. And I'll be damned. So ladies are sending their, their pictures. They're getting a gradual reduction you, in wrinkle you death. You box you. <laughs> I know personally, uh, my hands have changed. They, they look like I'm 61. I have young hands. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people are, are, are seeing those kinds of effects. A lot of the ladies are losing these things. The the wrinkles here around the neck, Yeah, around the neck, uh,
1: this is already no women still listening to the podcast. They're all at blog.undoctored.com and eatbelly.blog.com picking up the yogurt recipe and buying everything that you've ever written.
0: <laughs> now, this is inconsistent, Anthony. Uh, some people, male, men and ladies, regrow hair, but it's, it's not everybody. I don't, don't know, I don't understand why. Some people are getting hair regrowth, like ladies have told me that they've lost their eyebrows, it's thrown back. Uh, More body hair, uh, some head hair. Uh, Healing seems, one of the most telling observations in the MIT studies, mouse and human, was the dramatic acceleration of healing. Huge. Mice heal, instead of 12 days, like a skin wound, three days. Humans, 12 days down to about five or six days which means any kind of wound. Skin is just a surrogate for healing. It's not just skin healing. It could be other body organs. So healing is magnificently accelerated. We've only had a handful of experiences where people had to heal something. Uh, One woman's husband underwent back surgery and her orthopedist said, at 81 I think, said he, he healed like a child. Like a, like a young person. That's what's happening. So what's, what's happening with this crazy yogurt, besides the upper GI colonization effect, is it provokes hypothalamic release of oxytocin. Ooh. So what we're doing
1: Feels is yogurt. We're, doing,
0: <laughs> we're restoring youthful levels of oxytocin. And by the way, the only adverse effect we've seen of this is increased emotionality. That wow. is, people will say, you know, I, I, I cry at movies, and it's not even sad. <laughs> so that's the only adverse effect.
1: One thing I, I should caution For the listeners you, who aren't familiar with oxytocin, maybe you can describe um, what that is.
0: Yeah, that's how, how actually I stumbled onto this. I was thinking about oxytocin. I can't remember why. Uh, and uh, because oxytocin is traditionally thought of as nothing more than a drug... It's a hormone, a drug you give pregnant moms who want to schedule delivery. So if your wife said, I need to deliver at 8 a.m. on Wednesday, uh, they give you a shot of oxytocin, and it causes delivery at 8 a.m. on Wednesday. It causes uterine contraction or something like that. It causes uterine contraction and cervical relaxation, so you deliver the child. End of story. Well, that's not the case. Oxytocin is proven to be very fascinating. For instance, it's being given... To kids with autism, it increases social engagement. It's being given to people with schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia. increases uh, 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 um, uh, empathy for other people. Uh, it's being given, uh, the Chinese did a study, and uh, in, in overweight people, placebo versus intranasal in this case, not the yogurt, but intranasal, oxytocin, 24 units, four times a day. Uh, <coughs> placebo group, over two months, lost nothing. Oxytocin group lost 19.8 pounds, no change in diet, no change in exercise, and we we are seeing though inconsistently, Anthony, uh, weight loss effects with this stuff, particularly if it facilitates fasting and reduction in appetite. Uh, And Oh, I should mention, uh, you get a, a dramatic increase in muscle, so I gained 12 pounds of muscle I go to the gym 15 minutes once a week, maybe twice a week on a busy week, and I gain, I'm 61. I gained 12 pounds of muscle doing this. Uh, People are reporting dramatic increase in in the weight they handle, so it's it's really a super duper cool strategy, but but I bring it up in the context of SIBO because I think one of the most important things we're learning from this, I think, is it, it beats back SIBO recurrences.
1: Do you think when we get to like the root cause, I mean, this is fascinating. I'm I'm making notes, 24 units, four times a day, oxytocin. I picked some up years ago on on anti-aging hyphen systems. And I I never really ran with it too much, but um, these these are fascinating statistics. When you get to like the root cause of this SIBO epidemic, is it... And and I know it's probably a perfect storm and it probably has has something to do with all the wheat being consumed. There's also a lot of people like you and I who are pretty health conscious and also dealing with these things. What else do you think is at play? Is it is it weakened immune function? Is it some of these environmental things and the toxins that we're exposed to? Is it brain chemistry being thrown off that that's, you know, tying into the hypothalamic production of oxytocin or what, like what's your hypothesis knowing that there's probably not data out there?
0: Yeah, exactly, and You're right. There are no data. It's, the, my, most of my uh, conventional colleagues who even know about this and think about it think it's things like reduced intestinal motility, unexplained reduction in intestinal, intestinal motility. By the way, grains cause a reduction in, in intestinal motility because of the protein gliadin that yields opioid peptides. And just like oxycontin and morphine that causes constipation because it slows intestinal motility, so, so do grains. That's why people have to load up on cellulose, bran fiber, to bulk up their poop because they get this opioid slowing effect. Uh, but I think that's part of it. Uh, that is the increase, the, the wild willy-nilly increase in grain consumption has caused, in, in effect, intestinal slowing, the proliferation of sugars. You know, if this if, if you and I were living a Leave It to Beaver life in 1955, we wouldn't be drinking you know sugary sodas and slushies and things like that. We you know we wouldn't have those things very often. They'd be treats uh, if we had them at all. And of course, we wouldn't be eating between meals because your mom would smack you. So. Um,
1: yeah, it was okay to beat your kids back then.
0: <laughs> yeah, and antibiotics were much less, much more uh, uh, used, much more conservatively. They weren't just handed out because you had a scratchy throat or some other trivial cause. So there's that. Of course, the huge proliferation of antibiotics in food you know, to, to encourage growth of livestock and other effects. So, I mean, we could go on, but it's probably all kinds of effects. You know, in Milwaukee, that's where I live. They converted oh, nice. from chlorine in the water. You know, Milwaukee prides itself in being like the capital of water, of freshwater treatment because they had that big cryptosporium scare about 20-some years ago. So they invested a ton of money, as did the university, in freshwater treatment. So they think they're real smart now. So I converted from chlorine to chloramine, a really bad idea because chloramine is very persistent. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you know, in years past, if you wanted to get rid of the chlorine in your water, you boiled it for twenty minutes. It was it was chlorine free, essentially. Chloramine, you have to boil for three days before it begins to evaporate. Well. That means it persists in the body. It persists in the groundwater. Persists in the soil. So now we have chloramine contamination because they think it's better for clear, you know clearing out the Cryptosporidium, etc., from from drinking water. So it's 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 I think all those things, as you say, perfect storm. All these things colliding all at once. And I mean, if this is true. My speculation is true. That is. Um, There's probably 60 to 100 million Americans with SIBO. And we're talking about widespread effects that have, you know, with huge implications for health. Uh, And the healthcare system is very poorly equipped to deal with because the docs simply are not paying attention to it. And they tend to blow it off. And, but but you and I know that, you know, when you see somebody with 20 years of incapacitating fibromyalgia, bedridden once or twice a week because they can't even move, it's so painful. Get up from bed, jump on a bicycle, go for a walk, and be completely pain-free within five days. Treating your SIBO, you know that we're on to something.
1: Oh yeah, I mean that—that that probably sounds like a miracle to a lot of listeners who have dealt with persistent pain and and rheumatic issues that have persisted despite cutting out grains and and following some of some of your earlier recommendations. I think it could be fun because of how big of an issue this is and how many people would help if we put our heads together. And then I say that most, I'm going to lean on you a little bit because uh, I have a, t- a tremendous amount of respect for you. But, Let's do some rapid fire recommendations. We've covered the, um, the, the yogurt and people can get more info on that at www.wheatbellyblog.com and blog.undoctored.com. They can pick up your books, Wheatbelly and Undoctored. Let's do some rapid fire recommendations for people that are dealing with fibromyalgia or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which are likely one and the same. We'll probably come to that conclusion at some point in the near future. What are some rapid fire recommendations for getting those people relief? Let's talk about the water, let's talk about the food, let's talk about interventions and biohacks.
0: Well, the most important steps are the basic steps I talked about. Wheat grain elimination, carb limitation. Uh, uh, It's 15
1: grams of, of carbs per meal or is that net carbs? Net carbs. Net carbs. Yeah. Okay. So total, total carbs minus total fiber for, for the people that aren't, aren't nerds like us.
0: Yeah, exactly. And Anthony, that little rule of thumb has served us very, very well over the years. It, it, it's going to vary, of course, individual, individual, but it holds true more often than not. So that little rule really helps. But uh, omega-3 fatty acid supplementation, and I, I use 3,600 milligrams EPA, DHA per day, not official, but EPA, DHA.
1: What's your go-to on that? Go-to brand?
0: Nordic Naturals is wonderful. Pharmax, another good one. Um, uh, Now is pretty good. There's lots of good brands now. Even the big box stores have gotten better. They're certainly superior to the crap that the big, that big pharma sells us at 30-fold more money because the docs don't know what the hell they're doing. They don't realize that sexy sales are just duping them and selling them the same
1: stuff. Those if you don't like your money. <laughs> that's that's right.
0: Or our money, because we end up paying for those oh, yeah. people, Good right? Yeah. Because I had people who said, don't, don't, I'm not going to go to Sam's Club or just write me the prescription. I said, we well, understand, Mary, the dose we're talking about for you is between three and $700 a month. That'd be all bear. She says, I don't care. So there are people who don't care, so that's why I encourage people to not not use the prescription form. That's it. I'm
1: moving to (laughs) Mallorca.
0: Vitamin D, (laughs) and huge, get your vitamin D to around 70 nanograms per milliliter, which is typically about 6,000 units per day in oil-based gel cap form. Iodine and thyroid optimization, because thyroid disruption is so utterly common today.
1: Yeah, what's your go-to iodine? There's so much with like nascent iodine and Lugol's iodine and, and all of these different forms. What do you use and, and what's the dosage that you recommend to clients? You know, when I always say whenever in doubt, do
0: it the way we did it in nature, which means either consume some seafood, seaweed, or it's cheap surrogate kelp tablets, that's the easiest thing to do. Uh, The way we're supposed to get it is eat the thyroid glands of animals, just as we're supposed to get our EPA and DHA by eating the brains of animals. But modern people don't want to do those kinds of things, nor run naked in the tropical sun uh, and get our vitamin D that way. (laughs) Depending
1: on the company. (laughs) so,
0: So what we're really doing with all these strategies is Mimicking the behavior and serving the intrinsic needs of the human body. That's why I don't talk much about things like ashwagandha and turmeric. They're fine, but they don't serve an intrinsic human adaptation. These are all the things we're talking about. Iodine, magnesium, omega-3 fatty acids, etc. are trying to re- cause us to revert back to the way it was. Cultivate bowel flora before Bt toxin, glyphosate, chloraminated, chloraminated water, etc. cetera, uh, entered our bodies. So that, that's the start. Here's a here's typical story. Somebody says, I did all that wheat and grain elimination, omega-3s, vitamin D, and D. My fibromyalgia or my rheumatoid arthritis or my psoriasis is 70% better. But it's still there, and I get occasional flare-ups. That's SIBO. That's almost always SIBO. So address the SIBO. And as, as you, you know and your listeners know, getting rid of SIBO is not a one-time event. It's a multiple one. Uh, effort event. And that's why I mentioned that yogurt, though, because I think, I, I think, I don't know, I think that it may be at least the first several months of experience. It seems to be beating back SIBO, Anthony. I think effortlessly.
1: It's it's very exciting, um, and I'm fascinated by this. I'm in alignment with everything you've mentioned, especially with like the thyroid glandulars and and consumption of. Every organ and every part of the animal, we lost a lot when we just shifted to consuming the muscle and, um, and, and, and consuming that as meat. The, um, the yogurt has huge promise. And we've seen people, we talk about this in the ultimate biohacking Academy. We've seen people using like, um, and AR and BR, maybe combined with like really high dose garlic. Um, Alamed is awesome. They sell it on, on sinus survival.com. Do you have any probiotics that you sell on, on your websites or is it, is it mostly your books and then you, uh, direct people to the nutrients and, and resources that are going to get them to where they're SIBO free fibromyalgia free and, um, and, and. Getting, getting some of that youthful skin you mentioned earlier.
0: Uh, you know, the probi- probiotics are still, as you know, in their infancy. A lot of probiotics don't even specify the strains. Uh, so as you know, strain specificity in probiotics is critical, but it's often ignored. So, so for instance, you and I have, all, and all your listeners have E. coli in our guts. We have several strains of E. coli. But what if you're exposed to the E. coli from contaminated lettuce that got exposed to, uh, to uh, calminor? But well, you could die, right? You could die from that strain of E. coli. So same species, E. coli, different strains. So strain specificity is critical. And that's why I say, while, other, while there may be many strains of lactobacillus rota that work, we only know that the two strains I specified, the atcc pta 6475 and DSM 17938, we know those two strains work. We don't know if the other ones work. So no one's done those studies, so I stick with what we know works. But in probiotics, a lot of these strains aren't even specified, so we don't even know. So right now, it's really hard to be uh, confident that the probiotics we're taking are crafted properly. But right now, the ones that work best for us are um, Garden of Life Raw, Renew Life, um, Mercola's uh, uh, Preparation, uh, and a couple of others. Uh, but I think in 10 years, you and I will look back and, and laugh at the crude preparations that we have today. There, there's so much more to know.
1: Yeah, it's very exciting to think about being able to get a culture of someone's microbiome, see what they've got, and then have a custom probiotic or, a, or an antimicrobial protocol followed by a custom probiotic and prebiotic that addresses exactly what what they had going on. Um, that'll be that'll be amazing times. Is there anything that you do for for getting your thyroid and and um some of the the glandulars and keeping them as a regular part of your diet and you found a supplement or do you do you go on grasslandbeef.com and order organ meats and things like that? <laughs> I, I will tell you
0: about 20% of your listeners just by getting iodine uh I I think the easiest way is kelp tablets is dirt cheap. You can take potassium iodide drops. I'm not a big fan of Lugol's and iodorol, those kinds of things. I've seen too many people develop iodine toxicity, Mm -hmm. meaning uh, their TSH goes from, let's say, 1.7 to 20, (laughs) and they gain 25 pounds. They get full of edema. Heart disease gallops forward, by the way, when that happens. You can even go into heart failure. So iodine toxicity is no small matter. By the way, those people treating people with ultra-high-dose iodine, I think what they're doing is treating SIBO. Uh, they're, they're exceeding intestinal absorption of, of, of iodine and treating their SIBO. Um, eventually, they get iodine toxicity, of course.
1: That's an uh, interesting I, hypothesis. I could see that.
0: Yeah, it's antibacterial, right? Right, yeah. Um, so I, I go for these. The RDA for iodine is 150 micrograms. I asked years ago, where would that come from? How do they know? And it comes from the observation that that's what it takes to not have a goiter, enlarged thyroid gland for lack of iodine. But, I, but then I asked, what's the ideal quantity? Well, that science is sketchy, um, but you can go to Japan, for instance, where on the island of Hokkaido, where they eat this strain of seaweed, uh, and they get about th- twenty to thirty thousand micrograms, or twenty to thirty milligrams of iodine per day. They have flagrant iodine toxicity. <laughs> uh, in, in mainland Japan, the average intake is in the range of twenty five hundred to thirty three hundred micrograms per day, and they get more iodine toxicity too. Though so it varies, if you're a fisherman versus a banker, et cetera, You know. So there's. So I, I think the ideal quantity is probably in the range of about four hundred, maybe five hundred micrograms per day. So that's what I've been doing. And I've, and I've never seen iodine toxicity at that. And I have seen a lot of people normalize their thyroid panels and get rid of some of the early signs of hypothyroidism, like inappropriately cold, hands and feet, thinning hair, constipation, dry skin, et cetera. So about 20% of people at the start of their program will respond to iodine. The only people who shouldn't do that are people with Hashimoto's or Graves' disease, the autoimmune thyroid disease. They, they should not take iodine until their thyroid antibodies are normalized. Uh, when that, that is when all autoimmune inflammation has become quiescent.
1: And that probably happens just by following your recommendations in wheat belly. And then if they combine that with addressing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, I would imagine that we'd see those antibodies diminishing over uh, a, a six to 12 month period.
0: Yeah. Sometimes longer. Um, uh, now, lots of, unfortunately, the thyroid is kind of like the pancreas. Was it, has incurred damage it's not very good at recovering so that's why a lot of people uh some so 20% of people respond just to the iodine and normalize all the thyroid measures but then some people will, will maintain some degree of hypothyroidism because the thyroid is not very good at recovering once it's taken a beating and those are the people who do better on armor thyroid nature thyroid and those kinds of things
1: yeah, I agree. I also think. I mean, most of our listeners know that I'm a little bit of a, a little bit of a lunatic with with EMFs and that sort of exposure. And, and I, I've seen huge improvements in thyroid function just in people cleaning up their exposure and, and their sleep environment, their their home environment, their work environment, and you know, being more conscientious about sitting with a Wi-Fi router between their legs or sleeping next to it all day uh, all oh, night long. Wow, and, and things like that. Yeah, I think there's a big component there, um, and it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not everything, but um, I don't shut up about it. So um, I was like, the, you know, the tinfoil hat guy for a while. Interesting. Um, nice. A couple rapid fire questions. So let, let's talk about Dr. John uh, Dewey Deweylar. I'm probably butchering his name, but he wrote "Eat Wheat: a Scientific and Clinically Proven Approach to Safely Bringing Wheat Back into Your Diet." He brought up some things about how avoiding wheat's like a band aid solution and he references 600 clinical studies on why we should include it and how we were eating it even longer than meat, so on and so forth. I'm sure you've encountered this book, and, and, and uh, Dr. John, um, what, what has been some of your responses to his assertions?
0: Well, the vast majority of the science used to support, like we talked about in the beginning, uh, is, is garbage. It's, it's observational epidemiology uh, of the sort that prove that Premarin is good for you. Of course, it's not true. So, so much of that has been debunked or has fallen apart in the face of, of real clinical trials. So, a lot of the science, and this is not true just for wheat, and it's true in so many other areas also. It, it leads to uh, people uh, being told stupid things by the media. Red meat causes cancer. No, it doesn't. That's just a stupid study. It's, it's a misinterpreted study. It's, it's an observational epidemiological study. Or... Um, uh, you know, cutting fat uh, reduces heart disease. And no, it does not. So, all that has fallen apart. So, he's referring to studies. You know, there's all different kinds of studies in that list of 600, but a lot of it was observational epidemiology or made the fatal flaw, of what, like we talked about in the beginning. If you replace something bad with something less bad, then there's an apparent benefit. And this, by the way, Anthony, happens over and over and over again in, in nutritional thinking. For instance, another example would be if we replace high glycemic index foods with low glycemic index foods and there's an apparent benefit, a whole bunch of low glycemic index foods must therefore be good. But low glycemic index foods raise blood sugars sky high. Just a little less high than high glycemic. So once again, happens <laughs> <As> quickly. <laughs> exactly. Oatmeal is a low to medium high glycemic index food. It's horrible. It raises blood sugar sky high. Who's going to change all that, by the way, Anthony? The continuous glucose monitor devices like the Apple Watch. When people watch their blood sugar go from 100 to 240 after a bowl of stone ground organic uh, oatmeal with no added sugar, they like, say, holy shit.
1: I can't believe it. They <laughs> wake up from their nap to see their sky high reading.
0: <laughs> yeah. It made you diabetic. One stinking bowl of oatmeal can make you diabetic. <laughs> so, But once again, so replace something bad with something less bad. So a lot of that in there too. So there's a whole, it's heterogeneous the list he's talking about. I know he's talked about how humans have been eating grains for longer than 10,000 years. And he's right. Sporadically. So when I say people have been consuming grains for ten to 12,000 years, that's clear. It's not my argument. I'm not an anthropologist nor an archeologist. That's coming from the archeology span community. And it's very solid that systematic cultivation of grains began about ten to 12,000 years ago. There are sporadic and rare findings that suggest that there may have been consumption of wild grains in small quantities before that, but that's not systematic consumption. We're talking, and, and by the way, even if it was forty thousand years ago, we're still talking about a, a moment in time compared to the two point five million years that humans have walked this planet. So the, the the argument still stands that humans are not meant to consume the seeds of grasses. And that's what grains are; they're seeds of grasses. That's and that's why you know if if you and your family heaven not were starving, hadn't eaten anything in two weeks, and you stumble on a field of wild wheat grass no one would say hallelujah dad we're gonna eat like kings because humans don't recognize grasses as food and as you know people have tried to consume grasses in various forms like during wartime and they get sick you throw it up If it goes through your gastrointestinal uh, system, it comes out intact. By the way, a lot of the same things happen when you try to consume the seeds of grasses. That is wheat, rye, barley, triticale, bulgur, corn, oats, etc. There are components that are are, um, digestible, but there are numerous components that are completely indigestible and are thereby highly toxic, like wheat, germ, gluten, very potent bowel toxin. It's completely impervious to human digestion. So, uh, I mean, lots to talk about the grains.
1: Yeah. And there's the reality of it is we've done so much to our food with incorporating like amylopectin A and these super starches and the use of glyphosate that we've, that we've touched on. And most people lack the tools or are, or even the willingness to do that investigation before they put anything in their mouth, where it's just plain easier to keep that consumption of that food as much more infrequent. Um, because it 's hard to see they 're not required to label and put these things on the box or the package, and um, most of us have enough stuff going on where we 're not going to do that investigative research before we consume yeah, it.
0: but as, as it sounds like you' you 've done a lot, and as you as you as you, rec- as you know the dig the deeper you dig, the worse it gets and the, when I first wrote the original wheat belly book, whatever it was eight years ago or so, I thought. I ask myself, am I the asshole here? Am I missing something? <laughs> Why is every dietitian, physician, every agency saying, you know, grains grains should occupy every you know, every meal, every snack, the biggest part of your diet? And I'm thinking, am I missing something here? I mean, when I take that out of people's diets, their lives are transformed. They're, they lose weight, their rheumatoid arthritis goes away, also their colitis goes away, they're no longer diabetic. As it, but as, as you have discovered, the deeper you dig, the worse it gets, and the easier it gets to pick on these things, especially in light of what agribusiness has done to the modern to modern strains.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, this has been amazing. I've been having a blast, Dr. Davis. I guess the last the last question is um, before we kind of point people to. Where, where they can sh- keep up to date with what you're working on and all sorts of other exciting things that you have coming out. Do you have any other recommendations for SIBO, things that you recommend doing with, with water to get out some of the toxins that we've added to that, um, that we haven't mentioned that, that someone who is dealing with that issue or fibromyalgia um, might be able to take home with them?
0: Yeah, and I I won't pretend to be an absolute expert on SIBO. I'm I'm too new to this conversation, having dabbled in it for only two years or so, but I'll tell you the lessons I've learned. So this is how we've been approaching it. Uh, uh, As you you point out, remove the things that cultivate SIBO, chlorinated water, GMO foods, uh, grains, sugars, uh, minimize any reliance on antibiotics, try to buy organic foods that are less likely to have herbicide, pesticide residues, uh, et cetera. Um, reseed your gut with a high-potency multi-species probiotic given the limited science and the certainty of our probiotics um, in the aftermath of antibiotics and I use the same things you're talking about candibacin AR, candibacin BR, FC side of this biocide much cheaper by the way right Than than stinging rifaximin mm-hmm. and they work they work um, and what I think is working for preventing recurrence is in the aftermath of antibiotics once again the high-potency multi-species probiotic uh, lots of fermented foods I think does help. Kombucha, kimchi, fermented veggies you make yourself, Bubby's pickles or make your own. I, I have a batch of Bubby's pickles I made at home on my, myself on the counter. Uh, sauerkraut, um, yogurt, kefirs. Uh, and then uh, I'm speculating, but I think that this crazy yogurt we're making with lactobacillus that colonized the upper GH, I, I think that may be a key pivotal factor too.
1: it sounds like it well if there's any time to drop the mic and, and walk off as the crowd chants your name it's right now dr william davis this has been amazing where can uh where can listeners stay up to date with you, you so you've got your book wheat belly you've got on doctorate. go to amazon and pick those up um if you've gotten any value from from this episode where else can people stay up to date with all the cool stuff you're working on and, and new things that you have coming out
0: you, you, you can't help but stumble into it. It's Wheat Belly blog, Wheat Belly Facebook page, Wheat Belly 10 Day Grain Detox Facebook page. <laughs> um, there's an Undoctored uh, Facebook page. Uh, the blog is block.undoctored.com. There's an Undoctored Inner Circle for people who really want to deep dive it. That's a subscription uh, uh, website, by the way. But if you really want to dive deep, like tonight, for instance, I'm going to have a, a – just like this, on the Zoom platform, I, I meet with about 25 people. And we all talk about the yogurt and, nice. and stuff. Some people from all around the world. So uh, you'll find all kinds of stuff to suit
1: your level of interest. Beautiful. Dr. William Davis, this has been a lot of fun. I've had a blast. And you are, uh, you're a lot of fun to hang out with and a wealth of knowledge. So thank you. Likewise, Anthony. A big thing
0: Thanks for doing what you're doing. It's very necessary.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Violite. So many of the health experts and world-class athletes I've interviewed over the years have revealed one of their secret weapons to improve performance is photobiomodulation and specifically light therapy. And the Violite is one of the best photobiomodulation device companies on the market. I'm a big fan of their product the Neuro, which is a transcranial intranasal headset that gives efficient and effective whole brain stimulation. Its design utilizes photonic energy to stimulate cellular function in neurons and help improve brain bioenergetics. I'm also a big fan of the 655, which is a 655 nanometer red intranasal light therapy device that helps stimulate your body to move towards an ideal internal environment. It lowers inflammation, it kills pathogens, in the blood, this low-level laser diode it releases coherent light in the visible red spectrum, and it irradiates the capillary-rich nasal cavity. I've found all three products to have a huge impact on maximizing my performance, and you can check them out at ViLight.com. That's V-I-E light.com, and for a special bonus to you guys Violet is offering 10% off of your purchase so all you have to do is use the discount code biohacks that's b-i-o-h-a-c-k-s at checkout and you will save 10% on your order so check out the Violet product line you will not be disappointed